You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Cindy Shupak. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. There was another great line. Um, it was about anti-aging in the film. It was like, anti-aging is death. Yeah, why is everyone so anti-aging? You know what's anti-aging? Death. Yeah. Um, so- yeah, you know, that's funny. That that line <laughs> can sound very woo-woo or something, but um, I had a friend, Padma, who she was like a talent. Um, she worked for HBO when I worked at Sex and the City, and uh-huh. HBO considered talent not just the actors but the writers and producers. So she was like the person who helped us with all our getting to award shows and planning and submitting uh-huh. things. But then she became a writer, and then yeah. she died very young at like oh. 30 of a oh. rare cancer. And we used to always go um, to yoga together on Sundays. And I just, and me and her and two other girls, and we would go to yoga, and then we would go and talk about our lives. And after she died, I was in yoga one day, and I felt like I could still hear her because she was very funny and wise and spiritual. Mm-hmm. She, we were doing that anti-aging pose where you have your legs in the air. <laughs> and I felt like I could hear her say, why is everyone anti-aging? You know what's anti-aging? Death. Mm-hmm. Like, it stuck with me. It was something I never thought of that line. And I also remember kind of interrogating that and saying to myself or her, I was like, okay, so am I hearing you or do I just know what you would say and she said or thought or I thought, what does it matter? And I think sometimes when you like know someone and love them enough, you can still hear them talking to you, whether they truly are or whether you just know their love and spirit enough, you know what they might say. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I always wanted to use that line. (laughs) I'm happy to pick that out. And sometimes I wonder for people who aren't involved in the arts or specifically aren't involved in storytelling or aren't perhaps actors or something where they're allowed to, you know, these are kind of professions where you're sort of allowed to live many lives and try on many lives. So that sometimes I I wonder, like, and then I notice like the high drama, like uh, people who have kind of soap opera lives, but they don't have a a career Uh in the arts. And I feel like, well, if Uh they were artists, they would like be more stable in their private life. Like people you would expect to have like boring lives. Like sometimes I like to know some academics and then like, and they're becoming with to me with their soap opera problems. And I'm like, you should just get into the arts and then leave that out. Because, you know, you think of academics as boring or whatever, instead of being so right. stable. Um, so sometimes yeah. on the flip side of that, do you feel like sometimes you might have been um, in... Yeah, I know if I wasn't involved in the arts in some way, then I feel like, oh, maybe I would be seeking a diversity of partners or something to have that f- sense of feeling alive, right? Yeah, that's a good point. I wonder. I mean, it might be like which came first, the chicken or the egg, because I think you have to have a certain disposition to be comfortable with a life as an artist, which is much less stable and is more project to project. Yeah. 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 I I should read this piece. That's a good, like, lead into this. Oh, okay. Yeah, please do. I was wondering when you... Okay. So this is an essay. Well, first of all, essays for me, which I think of them as comic essays, first-person pieces, things like the New York Times Modern Love column or Mm. Moth Stories, Um, Both of my books were collections of my essays because it's just easier for me to do sometimes like a bite size. Even when I was writing about dating, that book goes from breakup to your next boyfriend and it was broken down into just chapters of stages of that process. And my book about 
marriage and infertility with sort of chapters of different issues that you have when you're married and when you're married and you're trying to have a baby. And I've always um, really enjoyed essay writing because you can just take one topic and really try to chase it down and tell it in a colorful way. And during this shelter in place, I have to say, I was so, when this started, I really had trouble writing because I felt like I can do all the executive functioning things that I need to do, but to keep my house running and my child homeschooled and scheduling and just everything. But as far as like creating from scratch, like the blank page, I was really having trouble clearing my head enough to do that. So I finally decided, okay, I'm going to write an essay <laughs> and um, see if I and it was actually came because a friend of mine who's a TV writer said she was thinking of putting together an anthology of essays of different comedy writers mm-hmm. while they were dealing with it shelter in place time. Uh-huh. Um, but I, so I wrote it for that. And then she said she was feeling later, like, I think I was the only one who wrote one. So I might try to get it published in, uh, in a magazine or a column or something, yeah. but so you'll be the first to hear it. Wonderful. Um, or maybe it will never end up anywhere, I don't know. Okay, so this is called um, Love in the Time of COVID-19. Mm. The timing's not great, what with this pandemic and all, but I think I might be in love. I mean, really in love. The kind of love I've written about, but have never truly been sure existed. Love at first sight kind of love. Love that feels so right, you just know. Ugh, do you hate me? I hate me. <laughs> I can't even take myself seriously because I'm going through my second divorce as I type this. Clearly, I don't have a great track record for identifying a love that lasts. In fact, I haven't had a good relationship since ancient Greece. At least that's what a past lives reader told me when a friend gifted me a phone session during the long stretch between my first and second marriage. I remember thinking, how will this lady be able to read my past lives over the phone as if an in-person past lives reading would be totally accurate and authentic? Still. What did I have to lose, other than what's left of my credibility as a logical person? The voice on the other end of the line told me that I have been a woman in almost every lifetime, which she said was unusual, and then she told me that I hadn't had a good relationship since ancient Greece. To which I replied, oh, wow, I knew I was in a slump, but wow. She said I could have kids if I wanted to. Apparently, I've raised a lot of children over the centuries, and I've even had some relatively happy years in Ireland. You know, you've had it rough when the potato famine was the highlight. But my job this time around, she said, was to learn how to love and be loved. My first marriage was to a man who, two years in, realized he was gay. My second, which lasted 14 years, was to a man who didn't have the good manners to realize he was gay or to have an affair. He just fell out of love with me, I think. I'm still not sure what happened, but it happened. Mediators and lawyers were involved. A chocolate lab was involved. A child was involved. The premiere of a movie I directed was involved. I had hopes that he was the culmination of my 3,000-year search for happiness. But now I realize, as we finalized our divorce agreement, he was not the one. But I think maybe this guy I met less than a month ago on a plane is. I want to say that in the smallest font possible. Of course, there is no reason to believe this will work out any better. Of course, I should feel a tad pessimistic standing here in the aftermath of what I thought was my happily ever after. But it feels different this time. It feels effortless. It just feels so right. I know. I, like most fully grown humans, fully grown humans have always bristled at those words, even when uttered by a good friend. And I am a girl's girl. I pride myself on being supportive. Even when I couldn't get pregnant, which shouldn't have been a surprise, I was 40 by the time I finally started trying. I never felt less happy for friends who did get pregnant. I never believe there's just one pie of happiness, and if you get a slice, that's one slice 
left for me. I believe there's enough for all of us, and any proof that love exists is proof that more of us can and will find it. But those words, you just know, it just feels so right, always made me worry that other people were having a better, more sure-footed love experience than me, or less generously, I saw them as deluded and annoying, holier than thou, happier than thou. Talk to me in a few years, I would think. But now, with this new relationship, it does feel right. And worse than knowing that those words are potentially triggering, I am aware that they are potentially uninteresting. Who wants to hear about happy people? No film ever started with happy people unless it was a tragedy. The happier people are in the beginning of the film, the worse it's going to be for them. Just watch any based on a true story adventure movie, like Into Thin Air or A Perfect Storm, and you will see that the first act is everyone's idyllic home life. Everyone's having sex, laughing, playing with the kids, patting the dog, wish I didn't have to go, but it's one last mission, rescue, climb, case, charter, one less goodbye, and then it's you and me in the retirement I can finally enjoy, or dream house we just finished building, or baby we're about to have. And all of this is seen through a gauzy, sun-flared lens, because in 90 minutes, half of these people will freeze or be shot dead or drown. So... I guess it's fitting, and maybe not even surprising, that I finally found happiness on the eve of this horror movie we're all watching and can't turn off. When I met this guy on a plane from New York to L.A., yes, a plane, he was sitting next to me. We were in coach, and I'm not sure what it says about some of my friends, but they find the most unbelievable part of the story that I met a guy in coach. Anyhow, when we met, COVID-19 still seemed to be something mostly happening in China. There were maybe nine cases in the U.S. I do remember I had a slight cough on that flight, and I was getting the evil eye from a few people, so there was a feeling that might, it might be coming our way. But as I write this less than a month later, there are 105,000 cases in the United States. When I finish writing the sentence, there will be hundreds more. Tomorrow that total of cases might double. This piece might be published, published posthumously. This is par for the course for me, by the way. It's unusual for me to have a high without a low usually love-related, right on its heels. I won an Emmy without having a plus one. I won most successful at my 10-year high school reunion, knowing that my date, my husband at the time, was gay and we would soon be divorcing. I went to the premiere of the movie I directed with my second husband, having just let me know that he was very unhappy and probably wanted to move out. To be fair, I forced the issue. He was planning to tell me after the premiere, partly out of kindness, partly because he still wanted to go. He felt he'd earned it, living through the experience of trying to get the movie made with me for 10 years. I wrote the Sex in the City episode when Carrie is smiling for photos while her heart is breaking because Aiden just broke up with her at Charlotte's wedding. I know that feeling, putting on a smile, dying inside. So I was right at home over the last six months following my separation, going through a flurry of OkCupid okay mishaps. A camera operator who turned out to be a Lebanese restaurant delivery guy and Trump supporter. A man who was separated, but apparently his wife didn't know it. A photographer who shoots hotel interiors and fashion, but mostly at holiday inns and headshots. One nice guy who had no job, no couch, and no libido. An Irish filmmaker who recently called to see if he could borrow $3,800. A recently divorced dad who ravaged me by text and then was afraid to get out of his car in real life. A professor whose wife had, a professor whose wife had two strokes during the birth of their second child, but when asked how physically limited she was, it turned out not very. She suffered from short-term memory loss. Like, maybe she couldn't remember why she married this guy. <laughs> My best relationship was with a married theater production manager whose wife had a girlfriend. I used to think all the good men were married. Now it seemed like the good men were married, but ethically non-monogamous, which means the best you can hope for is vice president. Everyone I met had a giant asterisk next to their name. I felt like Mia Farrow in The Purple Rose of Cairo when she said, he's fictional, but you can't have everything. 
And then I met this lovely man, IRL, which stands for in real life, a term I just learned and can't believe we need, because he had the seat next to me on a plane, and we watched the same movie, Ford versus Ferrari, and I rested my arm ever so gently against his during the second movie we both watched, Pain and Glory, and he didn't move his arm away, and he paused his movie while I went to the bathroom. And then just before landing, we finally talked, and he said he was visiting his son for the weekend, and he was divorced with two daughters in New York. So I very inelegantly blurted it out. I lived in the same house I bought when I was single, and then I was married and had a kid, and I still live there, but now I'm divorced. And then, emboldened by all the asterisk men I've dated, okay, Cupid, you served a purpose after all, I wrote my number on a slip of paper for the next time he was in town, since it sounded like he had a very full weekend already. But he texted that night, and that next night he came to pick me up for dinner, but we never had dinner or left my house. I can confidently say it was the best sex I ever had because it was the best sex I ever had and the most sex I ever had in a night and the most exciting and fun sex because I really liked this guy. And bonus, he did not, as the Lebanese restaurant delivery guy who wasn't really a cameraman did, say during sex, are you my little bitch? To which I believe I responded, um, sure. He didn't say anything that took me out of the moment and there were no asterisks, no other shoes dropping Everything he said just made me like him more. And our second date was a full weekend of him visiting where we got along as well or better than the first weekend. He's so sure-footed. He's crazy about me. He's not afraid to say it. And that first date, after that first date, I broke up with men who didn't even know they were dating me. After the second date, I got off OkCupid completely. And now we're all on lockdown. I somehow committed to being monogamous with the one man I can't sleep with. We are in two of the cities that are most hard hit by this virus. We're distance learning, me with my nine-year-old daughter in Los Angeles and with his 11-year-old daughter in New York. What I wouldn't give to be six feet away from him. Getting on a plane feels to us and our respective exes like playing Russian roulette with a lot of us. And I have to admit, the long and lonely, voluntary, solitary confinement of COVID-19 has made me face all the feelings I've been trying to outrun regarding this divorce. The disappointment, grief, failure, and loss. I never realized how much I liked coming home to someone. With a child during these uncertain times, you have to put on a brave face. But when my daughter leaves to stay at her father's, I realize I don't feel brave at all. Like this worldwide health crisis, I don't know how or when this story ends. It's hard to think about forever when you know love might not last. And yet, I am thinking about forever again. We talk about the trips we want to take, the bucket list items we want to check off together. On my list are four things. Survive the pandemic. Stay overnight in the ice hotel. See the northern lights. Learn how to love and be loved. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click to subscribe. Thank you for listening.